I trust you have prepared your hearts to receive the Lord's word to us this morning. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's gospel, chapter 2. In a few minutes, we will look at verses 1 through 12. Before we do, let me give you some thoughts that hopefully will help prepare your heart for what God has for us this morning. You know, there have been millions of volumes of books that have been written over the course of history. Many that claim to be divinely inspired. But there is only one that contains prophecies that have been fulfilled perfectly. And of course, that is the Bible, because that is the only book that God has written. There are at least 333 distinct promises just in the Old Testament concerning a coming deliverer, a Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And more than 100 of those prophecies were fulfilled literally at the first advent of Christ. One of which is in our text this morning that we will read out of Matthew 2. And some of these prophecies were, came all the way back from the book of Numbers, as we will look at here in a moment, written 1,400 years before Christ. In fact, in John 5, verses 46 through 47, Jesus spoke of what Moses wrote about me what Moses wrote about me. And we'll look at that here in a moment. And In fact, he said the same thing twice in Luke 24. So I want to begin with a little background. We're going to, go, we're going to start with Numbers, go all the way back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, and especially verse or chapter 24, because this has implications with the Christmas story. About two million Israelites, the context here is about two million Israelites are about to enter into the promised land after their exodus from Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness and they end up defeating the Amorites. And after that, in Numbers 22 verse 1, it says that they camp on the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now, the Moabites were a people that were absolutely terrified of the Israelites because they had seen what had happened to their neighbors, the Amorites, and they had heard of what had happened during their wilderness wanderings, especially what happened with Egypt. And so the king of Moab, a guy by the name of Balak, decides to hire a pagan prophet by the name of Balaam to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. We read in Numbers 22, beginning in verse 2, Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. So he hires this guy named Balaam, who had a reputation for being successful with omens, with soothsaying, Uh, due to demonic powers, but we know that Balaam also was aware of Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
But what's interesting, if we were to go back and study all of this, we would see how God spoke through Balaam concerning his blessings upon Israel and his ultimate curses on any nation that curses them. Of course, all of this is consistent with the promises recorded in the Abrahamic covenant. We read, for example, in Genesis 12 and verse 3, God says to Abraham, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what we see in Numbers chapter 22 through 24 is Moses recording a series of blessings and curses that reveal God's promises to uh, national Israel that I believe are still in force to this very day. There's a warning that God gives to Balaam. We read about it in Numbers 22, verse 12. God said to Balaam, do not go with them, referring to the Moabites. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And in Numbers 24, verse 14, he says, And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come referring to Moab and all of the enemies of God, of God's people, a prediction that reaches all the way into the future, the future coming of Israel's king, who will ultimately have dominion over all of the nations. In fact, in that text, the phrase, in the days to come, can be translated in the end of days or in the last days. It is used here in this text as well as one other place in Scripture, the first occurrence is found in Genesis 49.1. When Jacob gathered his sons before death, here's what we read. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. And then he, there's a section that follows that. I'll read it to you here in a moment that speaks of, of several prophecies concerning the Messiah. There in Genesis 49.1, we read, Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah is, or Judah as a lion, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read about this, for example, in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, John is instructed by one of the, uh, one of the elders in his vision who says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, back to Numbers and Balaam's prophecies. There are four prophetic sections in Numbers 20 through through 24 that end up blessing, not cursing, Israel. And, of course, Balak, the king of Moab, didn't want to hear that. And this is, once again, at the very heart of the Abrahamic covenant promises upon ethnic Israel. And in each of those sections of Scripture, we see the Messiah being referenced, the coming Messiah. 
In fact, in Numbers 23, 21, regarding Israel, we read, The Lord, his God, is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. And then in Numbers 24, 17, and this is the passage that I was trying to get to, he says this, and by the way, Balaam now obviously sees a gap in the vision that God has given him. He says, I see him now, or I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And then he makes this remarkable prophecy. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. A star, in Hebrew, koshav, which means a blazing forth or a shining forth. We know in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus is called the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. There we read metaphorical imagery depicting just the ineffable glory of the presence of the Messiah. So in Numbers 24, 17, there's an obvious reference to a coming king, this blazing forth. He's associated with this light. This is confirmed in the second couplet of that section. It says, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A, a scepter being uh, part of the royal insignia, once again, pointing to a king. We read about that in Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And back to Genesis 49 and verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Literally in the Hebrew, until he comes to whom the scepter belongs, which is Shiloh. Shiloh being a, a cryptogram or a, a secret code referencing the Messiah. So the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what was he referring to in these prophecies? Well, the star that comes forth from Judah is a reference to Jesus. This blazing, shining forth of light and this kingly scepter that, that would rise out of, uh, out of Israel is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gives us the context for what our Lord says to us in Matthew chapter 2. So will you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod secretly called the Magi 
and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, key to understanding what's going on here in this historical narrative that the Spirit of God has revealed to us through his servant Matthew is an understanding of the Magi. Were they... Oriental kings, as the popular carol says, we used to sing that. In fact, I remember getting in trouble with some of the other ruffians in our Sunday school class. We sang, we three kings of Orient are men who smoke the rubber cigar. It was loaded, it exploded, now you know where we are. And I remember getting in trouble for that. So who were these characters? One Bible scholar by the name of Vincent says, quote, Many absurd traditions and guesses respecting these visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular beliefs and Christian art. They were said to be kings, and three in number. They were said to be representatives of three families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons, by the way, of Noah. And therefore, one of them is pictured as an Ethiopian. Their names are given as Caspar, Belteshar, and Melchior. And their three skulls, amazingly enough, are said to have been found. They were found in the 12th century by Bishop Reinald of Cologne. And today they are on exhibit in a priceless casket in a great cathedral in Europe, end quote. Well, this is truly astonishing, isn't it? that this bishop could recognize who these guys were after all of those years. What is even more remarkable is that people believe this stuff. This betrays, doesn't it, the frightening gullibility that remains endemic in the world today, even in Christendom. Well, frankly, we know very little about the specifics of these wise men that are mentioned here in Matthew's account, but we can piece together a lot of information from historical accounts, even in the Bible. And the book of Daniel is key to this. Daniel sheds great light on understanding the identity of the Magi, as do other historians like the Greek historian Herodotus. If we go to verse 2, we notice the, the phrase wise men or Magi. It's really an untranslatable word, and it merely refers to a certain tribe of people. Best translated, the Magi were a priestly line of a people from among the ancient Medes. They were very skilled, we know, in astronomy, the science of astronomy, as well as the superstition of astrology. 
that Satan even continues to use to this day. And these two crafts were blended together back in those days. Um, Today we have the 12 signs of the zodiac. You see it in the horoscope, uh, a practice condemned by God. It presumes to define one's personality makeup and somehow give great insight into the future based upon whatever your sign is. By the way, that is the sin of divination. Stay away from it. It's abhorrent to God. Have nothing to do with that. It is detestable in the eyes of God, according to Deuteronomy 18. So the Magi were skilled in the practice of divination and sorcery. In fact, the word Magi was later corrupted down through history into the word magician, the word magic and magician, which is a a synonym for a sorcerer. So we can therefore conclude that these people were from the priestly line, the descendants of this tribe of people associated with the ancient Medes, a very ancient nomadic people whose origins can be traced all the way back to Abraham, Uh, in the Ur of the Chaldees, where they first lived. Read about that in Genesis 12. And according to Herodotus, the Magi were a hereditary priesthood tribe. We had the same thing with the Jews, right? The the, the Levites were were of the the tribe of of Levite in in Israel. They were part of, uh, of, of Israel that was set aside to be the priests of Israel. So the Medes were set apart or the Medes set apart these Magi. Now, we also find, as we look through Scripture and as we look through other historical records, that the Magi had great political influence on four major world empires. The first one being the Babylonian Empire, modern-day Iraq, and then the Medo-Persian Empire, which was a conglomerate uh, empire uh, that, that overtook uh, Babylon, and then even the Grecian Empire with Alexander the Great that conquered Medo-Persia, and then even the Roman Empire. And, in, and the Romans were terrified of these guys. The Magi rose to power through their demonic, cultic, astrological abilities, sorcery, uh, divination, astronomy, And they became the advisors of royalty in the ancient East. Thus, they were called wise men. It's fascinating in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 39.3, as well as verse 13, we read about Nergal Sar Ezer, the Rab Mag, which means the chief magi of the court of Nebuchadnezzar. They were the official advisors of the kings. We read in Esther chapter 1 and verse 13. So we read how Satan empowered them to advise Nebuchadnezzar in the violent uh, quest to somehow conquer Judah. You will recall there was a 15-year-old boy who had dealings with the Magi, and his name was Daniel. Daniel was kidnapped from a royal family in Judah along with Three other friends, they were deported to Babylon to be brainwashed into Babylonian culture. They were to be used to assist the Babylonians with all of the new uh, Jewish prisoners that had come into exile. We know as we read in scripture that Daniel rose in power and became a statesman in Nebuchadnezzar's court. 
He even became the confidant of the kings of of two world empires, not only the Babylonians, but also the Medo-Persian Empire with Darius, who could also be called Cyrus. In Daniel chapter 2, the Magi were called, in verse 10, Chaldeans. And in verse 27, we read that they were wise men, were astrologers, magicians, and soothsayers. Soothsayers just be just another way of saying they were demonically possessed fortune tellers. You will recall that they were unable to uh, interpret the king's dream, and so he was going to put them to death. But then God raised up Daniel, and in Daniel 2.24, Daniel pleaded with the king and said, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. I will declare the interpretation to the king. And in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 11, Daniel interprets the dream, and then Nebuchadnezzar made him master over the Magi. We read how the king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. These guys actually owed Daniel their life. Being their new leader and lifesaver, Daniel had their undivided attention, right? Daniel was a godly young man, and undoubtedly he taught them about Jehovah, the God of Israel, and the coming Messiah, He taught them Old Testament prophecy, and the wise man who came to worship Jesus would have certainly read Daniel's explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that revealed to him the successive stages of, of Gentile domination and power that would exist throughout world history, the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, then the Roman Empire, and then a coming revived Roman Empire that the United States is ultimately a part of. And with astounding detail, Daniel prophesied the Messiah coming to rule the world in glory from his throne in Jerusalem. In chapter 11 alone, there are over 100 prophecies that have been fulfilled literally, causing some skeptics to believe that they were written by a a later author who merely recorded events of his own day. That's how precise they are. Of course, that's not true. The Magi would have been aware of Daniel's prophecy in in chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, the 77s, 490 years. 490 years he prophesied before it would be the time when Messiah would establish the long-awaited kingdom for which Daniel prayed. In Daniel 9.25 we read, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, 69 weeks of years, 483 years. So we go back into that prophecy and we see in Nehemiah, Chapter 2 and verse 5 and 6, that King Artaxerxes issued the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And we know that that happened in 445 B.C. So by the time Jesus was born, guess what? What Daniel had prophesied had been fulfilled in terms of the time, seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, 69 weeks or 483 years. These magi would have known all of that. 
All of that time had elapsed. So they knew that it was time for the Messiah, the, the prince, to appear as Daniel, their ancient hero, had prophesied. The Magi would have also been well acquainted with all of the other Old Testament prophets. For example, Zechariah, who lived in Persia when Cyrus the Persian freed the captives from Israel to resettle their homeland. And he wrote about um, these prophecies as well and how the Messiah would fulfill these prophecies and return to Jerusalem. So my point with all of this background is to help you understand, dear friends, that these magi would have been well familiar with ancient Hebrew prophecy and the profound impact the Jewish, these prophecies would have had on the Jewish people, the Jewish culture, from Daniel to Esther, who Xerxes, you will recall, made queen of Persia, and on and on it goes. So to be sure, there is, there is no ambiguity in the Old Testament prophecies. There would be a Messiah who would come as king of the Jews and establish a kingdom on earth in fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. We see this all through the Old Testament. Now, a little more background. See, if you don't understand the background, you'll never understand the ground, right? Magi were so powerful in the day of Jesus that no Persian was ever allowed to become king apart from satisfying two conditions. First of all, this person had to master the scientific and religious practice and disciplines of the Magi, which would have included astronomy and math and agriculture, uh, architecture, natural history, and even astrology. They had to master those things. But secondly, they had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. So the Magi were the kingmakers in the day of Jesus. And the judicial and kingly office were controlled by the Magi. In fact, the wisdom of the Magi was called, in Esther 1.19, the law of the Medes and Persians. We read about that in Daniel 6, verse 15 as well. And they specialized in dream interpretation. It's fascinating, isn't it? 600 years before Jesus was born, our sovereign God who has ordained the end from the beginning used Daniel to prepare ancient kingmakers for the arrival of the king, King Jesus. What a coincidence, right? Oh, dear friends, the providence of God, what a miracle it is. Now, the context of Matthew 2, and here the plot thickens, as they say. Rome was terrified of the Eastern Empire. Across that great Arabian desert loomed the great Parthian Empire, land of the Medes and the Persians and Babylon. They were violent enemies. In fact, Rome fought with them in 63, 55, and 40 B.C. 
And where would they always fight? Along the coast of the Mediterranean, in the land of Palestine, in Syria, Jordan, Israel. In fact, Israel was basically no man's land between two great powers. And it's interesting how it still remains that to this day, does it not? The Romans especially despised and feared the Magi, these sorcerers, these astrologers. In fact, Philo of Rome, who was a uh, Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, said of them, quote, they are vipers, they are scorpions, and they are venomous creatures, end quote. Sounds like a description of Congress today, right? Now, at the time of Christ's birth, there was a ruling body in the eastern Parthian Persian Empire called the Magistani. And it was composed totally of magi. Their duty primarily was to make kings. In 2 BC, their king, who was Phraates IV, was poisoned by an Italian concubine who had borne him a son and whom she wanted to take over his throne. So they were looking for a new king in the Eastern Empire that would help them conquer Rome. So let's put all of this together in perspective as we marvel how God in his providence is orchestrating all of these events in history to accomplish his purposes. And in Israel, we have this insanely jealous, vile creature of a king named Herod. And the people despise him. And suddenly, he sees coming into Jerusalem an entourage of Persian kingmakers. Can you imagine what he thought? By the way, it's foolish to assume that these were three dudes on camels, okay? You just need to take that out of your mind, regardless of what your Christmas card or your nativity scene says, right? It was customary for these people in those days to ride white Persian steeds. They would have been protected by a large escort of soldiers, typically around a 1,000 mounted cavalry. We don't know how many came in with them, but that's typically how they would travel. And these kingmakers were not about to go into enemy territory unescorted in this Roman territory. And they would have also been accompanied by many, a multitude of servants. They would have had a large caravan of camels to, to carry their food and all of the things that they would require to camp along the way. By the way, it was about a two-month's travel to get there, all right? Imagine what Herod and those people thought when they see these pointed sorcery hats and these flowing robes and, and this large caravan of mounted Persian cavalry, a cavalry of soldiers escorting these kingmakers. And they're asking... According to verse 2, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
You know, the, you, you have to see the humor in this. Now, you also un, you must understand that they were very superstitious, and as soon as they hear the word star in Greek, it is aster, which literally means a blazing forth of light. Whenever they saw a falling star, they would think that it was some kind of omen about, or, or even a comet, that it would be some type of omen that, that would predict um, the king being dis- deposed. So kings would live in constant fear. Plus, notice it says, king of the Jews. And all of this adds to the humor of, of the passage. Notice the understatement in verse 3. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. The word trouble literally means to quake. Have you ever been so afraid that you just quake? You just tremble? It means to shake, to stir up, to throw into confusion. And the text says, and all Jerusalem with him. By the way, what makes it even more funny is Herod's troops at this time were away on a mission, so he was quite vulnerable. So the Lord had all of this planned. So what do wicked men do when they are threatened? Well, they angrily scheme against God, they shake their fist in his face, and they consult with the emissaries of Satan, their religious confidants, in this case the scribes and the chief priests. By the way, we've seen this with our own presidents. President Trump has had charismatic false teachers as confidants. Paula White, Mark Taylor, those types of people. Well, Herod had the same type of thing. In verses 4 through 8 we read, In gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. In verse 4 it says, began to inquire. Grammatically, in the original language, this carries the idea of they're constantly asking. They're constantly asking. I mean, Herod is on a search and destroy mission. He's got to find this child before things get out of control. So as we look at the rest of the text, let me give you just a real simple little outline. We want to look at light for the king makers and darkness for the king haters. We want to look at the idea of what this says about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and how we should respond to him. So with all this context, let's look at the narrative under, first of all, the heading, light for the king makers. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, could be translated, wow, look at this, unbelievable, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And again, they would have known of Jacob's prophecy that we read about in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Again, Shiloh being that cryptogram, that secret code that references the Messiah, the one who is also called the Lion from the tribe of Judah. And remember, undoubtedly, they would remember these truths that was taught to them over the years by Daniel. 
And I just find it amazing that 600 years before Jesus was born, God in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty and providence is reaching into the hearts of some of these magi through Nebuchadnezzar's and Nebuchadnezzar's court through Daniel, preparing the way for all of this, offering them a message of forgiveness and hope. And again, the Magi would have been familiar with these Hebrew prophecies, as I mentioned earlier, Numbers 24, 17, that a star, a koshav, a blazing forth of light is going to come forth from Jacob. Not a material star, but some blazing forth of light, a symbol of, of splendid dignity and power that is going to come from the loins of Jacob and that a scepter is going to rise from Israel, speaking of the Messiah King. In fact, Isaiah, the prophet, said in chapter 60 and verse 2, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. They were coming to worship the Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Jesus said of himself, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Again, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Now, in the miracle of divine providence, 600 years after, beyond Daniel, these magi, these kingmakers, see a blazing forth of light. And they know, because of the timing of Daniel's prophecies, because all that was prophesied with respect to this light, that something supernatural was going on. Now, again, what is this star? We can't say with absolute certainty, but I think we can rule out what most people think it is, and that is that it was some kind of a star like we see, you know, in the heavens. Have you ever tried following a star? I challenge you to do so. By the way, the nearest star to Earth is the sun, and that is 93 million miles away. And the outside portion of the sun is 7 million degrees Fahrenheit. So it can't be a star like we think of a star. It's intriguing. Also, Herod and others in Jerusalem could not see this light in the east. They couldn't see it. In fact, in verse 7, they had to ask the Magi where it appeared. There we read, Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Appeared is, is phino, and comes from the Greek word phino in, um, in Greek, and it means to flash or to shine or to blaze forth like lightning. When did you see this blazing forth is what he's asking. Herod understands that this is not merely a, 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 a celestial body millions of miles away in the heavens. And it's also curious, is it not, that, that the Magi would go west to Jerusalem when they saw this brilliant shining of light in the east. How would they know what to do? Well, they knew the meaning of what they saw. They remembered what Daniel said. They remembered the other prophecies concerning the Messiah. 
And it's fascinating, later in verse 9 of Matthew 2, this blazing forth of, of supernatural light that they saw in the east that had disappeared suddenly reappears and leads them directly over the house where the Messiah was. So that can hardly refer to a star like we think of a star. By the way, as a footnote, Jesus would have been about three months to two years old by that time when the, the Magi came to visit him. Um, remember in verse 16, Herod ascertained from the Magi the child's age. Why? Well, so that he could kill anybody two years old or younger. A very different scenario from what we typically see during the Christmas season in, the, in nativity scenes. Usually you have three wise men hovering over an infant in a manger. And it would have happened much later than when he was in the manger. And then, of course, you know, these nativity scenes today have, have also, you know, a blow-up Santa Claus. I've seen, you know, you've got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You've got the Grinch who stole Christmas. Uh, he's sneaking up behind Frosty the Snowman that's got a, a big orange banner that says, Go Vols. I mean, that's the kind of the typical thinking of American theology here today. But dear friend, what the Magi saw was not a, a massive sphere of, of plasma held together by gravity that shines due to thermonuclear fusion of hydrogen like we see in a star. That's not what they saw. They saw an austere. They saw a brilliant blazing forth of light, a shining. And by the way, notice it's not just any shining it says this was his star, a possessive genitive in Greek. It was his star. It was his austere. I believe that this is a reference to the Shekinah glory of the living God, a foretaste of the sign of the Son of Man that will one day appear in the sky as Jesus promised in Matthew 24 when all of the lights of heaven are turned out. And he returns in power and great glory at his second coming. This was a glorious light of the divine presence of the living God coming to sinful man. This was the light, same type of light, no doubt, that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. This was the blazing forth of light that provided the symbolism for Balaam's prophecy. In Numbers 24, 17, a star, a koshav, a blazing forth, shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. Now, folks, we must remember that God is spirit. He is immaterial. And often when he reveals himself throughout redemptive history, he materializes himself in a way that man can gaze upon him and often he does this by reducing his attributes to visible light, ineffable, dazzling, brilliant light. The Jews called it the Shekinah, reference to the glory of his presence, a manifestation of just this ineffable light. This, this probably is part of what we're seeing happening here with this star. 
Beloved, this is the effulgence of the glory of God. I always marvel when I think about my Savior in this way. We know that this was the light that blazed forth in the burning bush with Moses. We see it again on Mount Sinai. Remember when Moses begged God to show him his glory, but he couldn't do it. He just hid him in the cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand and passed so he could only see his backside. Otherwise, he would die. It was undoubtedly the Shekinah glory of the living God that led Israel through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is what hovered between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. This is what appeared to the shepherds that we read about earlier when they saw the glory of the Lord and the angel announced the birth of the Christ child. This is what blinded Saul that later became Paul on the road to Damascus. This is what we see in the Mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus revealed his glorious presence to Peter, James, and John, and his clothing became white and gleaming, his face like the sun, and so forth. And dear friends, this will be the sign of the Son of Man when he returns one day in power and great glory. In fact, this will be the lamp of the Lamb that will illumine the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. And verse 23, isn't it interesting that when he came the first time, there were only a selected few that could see him, that could see the light. But when he returns again, beloved, the effulgence of his glory will streak across the darkened heavens so that every man and every woman alive will see the coming of the king. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, verse 27. He says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So, beloved, the grace of God drew these Persian kingmakers to the Messiah. No doubt they said the prophet Daniel was right. And, of course, this would have been utterly reprehensible to the Jews to think that God would in any way have mercy upon these ungodly Gentiles, worse yet, these pagan sorcerers, the elite rulers of Persia? Ah, but he did. He even had mercy on me, as he has to you. For these magi to come to Christ is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah 65, verse 1, there we read, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. But Then later on of Israel, he said, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts of people who continually provoke me to my face. A passage that Paul quotes in um, Romans chapter 10, verses 20 through 21, speaking of Israel's rebellion. So folks, here we witness the power of sovereign grace that can pierce even the darkest of hearts with the light of the truth. And draw undeserving sinners to the light of his grace. Verse 2 again. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I want you to notice secondly and finally here this morning, the darkness for the king haters. We've seen the light for the king makers and now darkness of the king haters. Obviously, Herod knew of a promised Messiah that would come and he rightly feared that that day had come when these kingmakers come in asking for the king of the Jews. And so he says in verse 4, And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Isn't that interesting? A ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Those were the very words that God spoke to David in 2 Samuel 5 and verse 2 when he originally enthroned him over all the tribes of Israel at Hebron. So Herod and the religious elite of Israel knew what was going on, but they refused to bow the knee to Jesus. They refused to humble themselves. Verse 7, then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. When, when did you see this blazing forth of light? Well, why would he do it secretly? Well, it's obvious because he didn't want anyone to know of his nefarious plans to somehow kill a competing, kill a competing king. He needed to know the exact date, the exact time when they saw this light so that he could have an approximate idea of the age of the Christ child so he could plot to kill him and therefore every other male child that might be under that age to make sure that he snuffed them out. Dear friends, what a picture of high treason against the most high God. Herod responds in anger and fear. Verse 8, go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Obviously, this was a disingenuous request, betraying once again Herod's self-centered pride and cruelty. Herod's plan was to somehow circumvent the purposes of God. How utterly insane and arrogant. But like all godless rulers who reject the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he schemes, and yet his schemes all prove futile. By the way, Herod pictured the majority of the Jews, did he not? What did the Jews say of Jesus? We will not have this man reign over us. What a contrast to the Magi, verse 9, and having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east, by the way, which they had seen in the east, not which they had followed from the east, which they had seen. It was a signal. It was not a GPS. But now it says that this star went on before them until it came and stood over where the Christ child was. Again, only a selected few were allowed to see the light, those who humbled themselves by believing in him. But those who hardened their hearts 
could not see it. So once again, the light of grace reappears and it leads these men to the Savior. Seeing the glory of God naturally produces inexpressible joy. We all know what that's like, right? Remember when you first came to saving faith in Christ? You saw the light of his glory, the horror of your sin. Oh, dear friends, never lose that wonder. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Why would they rejoice exceedingly? Because they saw God working on their behalf, leading them to the Messiah King. And later Jesus would declare in John 8 and verse 12, I am the what of the world? I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And John tells us in chapter 1 and verse 14 that we've studied in weeks gone by. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Back to verse 11 of Matthew 2. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. By the way, will you notice they did not worship Mary? This is a bone that sticks in the throat of many Roman Catholics who worship her. Instead, they fall on their faces and they worship him. They prostrated themselves in lowly worship. By the way, this is, this is what people would do when they would approach ancient monarchs. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, their hearts are overflowing with gratitude. Gold, by the way, was, was and probably still is the most precious of metals. It was always a, a, a symbol of, of nobility, a symbol of royalty. Frankincense was uh, a very expensive uh, incense with, with a fabulous a fragrance. In fact, it was stored in a special chamber in the temple. It was used, uh, it was sprinkled on grain offerings and it symbolized the, the people's passionate desire to offer unto the Lord sacrifices that were pleasing to him. And then there's myrrh. They gave him myrrh, which was a costly perfume. Later we know that myrrh was mixed with wine as an anesthetic. It was offered to Jesus, remember, on the cross. It was also mixed with other spices to prepare his body for burial. All of these things fit together. Well, dear friends, may I ask you, to which category do you belong? The king makers or the king haters? The answer depends upon how you respond to the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but, have, but shall have the light of life. And how sad to see so many people walking in darkness these days. The Lord Jesus Christ has come, the one who, according to 1 Peter 2.9, has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And in John 1.4, he's described as the light of men, the light that shines in the darkness. Well, like many other preachers of the gospel down through redemptive history, I'm preaching to you the old story of Jesus. For God 
who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, as Paul says. And so today, God has graciously revealed these truths concerning his son to you. And I pray that you will place your faith in him because the next time Jesus comes, he is not coming in obscurity, but he's coming in glory, unimaginable glory. The next time Jesus comes, he is not coming in humility, but he's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The next time Jesus comes, he comes not to seek and to save, but he's coming to judge and to rule. And so I plead with you, if you do not know Christ as Savior, don't let another minute go by before you bow your knee to him and ask him to save you by his grace. And for those of us who know and love him, I pray that these great truths concerning our Savior and King that we've studied today will animate your heart to worship and to praise, especially during this Christmas season. And I pray that it will also move upon your will to live a life of holiness and purity before him, that we might enjoy the fullness of his blessings and that we might have the power of the Spirit to manifest the light of the glory of Christ in our lives so that others might be saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for these glorious truths. Our hearts are overwhelmed when we contemplate the glory of your grace, when we contemplate the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we try to just apprehend the amazing miracle of your providence that has orchestrated everything from the beginning until now, and until the end of time to ultimately fulfill your eternal purposes to bring glory unto yourself and to think that we're a part of that in some way. Father, we are overwhelmed and we bow before you in utter humility and joy for the glory of Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.